Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. The tyrants did it. Hitler took the guns. Stalin took the guns. Mao took the guns. Fidel okay. Castro took the guns. Hugo Chavez took the guns. And I'm here to tell you, 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. Doesn't matter how many lemmings you get out there on the street begging for them to have their guns taken. We will not relinquish them. Do you understand? That's why you're going to fail and the establishment knows no matter how much propaganda, the republic will rise again when you attempt to take our guns. Our guest today is Dr. Spitzer, Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Political Science at SUNY Cortland. He is the author of 15, yes, 15 books, including five on gun control alone, has written over 600 scholarly articles, book chapters, reviews, papers, and essays. And his new book, The Gun Dilemma, has just been published by Oxford University Press, which we'll obviously discuss later in this episode. He has testified before Congress, participated in meetings at the White House, and had had his work cited by federal courts. In short, he is one of the country's leading experts on gun control, and we're absolutely honored to have him here on In Politic. On a more personal note, I'm honored to have Dr. Spitzer join us because when I was a young grad student completing my PhD at Syracuse University many years ago, I worked under Professor Spitzer as an adjunct professor, which was a wonderful experience as a junior faculty member. So with that, Professor Spitzer, welcome to In Politic. Great to speak with you today. So, Professor, I'd like to start with really just the basics for the listeners, right? Um, Many of whom might not be entirely familiar with the policies of gun control or their understanding is is just simply limited to uh, the headlines in the media or their understanding is perhaps limited or skewed by social media. And so I just want to really kind of start with the basics of what do we mean by when we say gun control? I mean, are there different forms of gun control? Are there different policies associated with it? Are there different levels of control? Or does it simply mean when you know we say gun control, the, this Marxist government is coming to take away my guns and disarm me? What does it actually mean? Well, it means all of the above. Um, it's, a, it's a general reference to the laws of the country, of the states, and of localities that uh, pertain to what people who have and own guns can and cannot do or should and should not do. And it is law-based in that respect. Of course, it's a much bigger picture because of the nature of the issue of gun policy in America. I, I guess I would say that the operative initial point I would make is that <clears throat> while gun ownership is as old as America, as old as the earliest European settlers, so are gun laws. As a matter of fact, the very first gun law was enacted in the year 1619 by what was to become the Virginia House of Burgesses. In its earliest form, when the Jamestown colony, the first permanent British colony that hung on in uh, North America, uh, leaders convened in summer 1619, they enacted a series of local laws to govern their fledgling colony. One of those laws was a gun control law. And from that day to through the end of the 19th century, start of the 20th century, Colonies, states, and localities enacted literally thousands of gun laws of every imaginable variety. There is no gun law that a modern person could think 
of or conceive that did not exist sometime in our past. And I mean, before the 20th century. So that story is not well known. Um, but when we talk about gun control in a more general way, it's usually a reference to, uh, as well as the laws, to the politics of gun control in America, the political controversy, why it's so controversial, why guns are so important to some people, and many other things. Professor, what was that 1619 law? It was a law that made uh, that made it illegal to sell, give, or trade firearms to Native Americans. And the penalty, if you did it, was death. So um, among the very first gun laws were laws enacted in most of the colonies to prohibit uh, the settlers from doing that very thing. The problem was those laws were widely ignored because trading with the Indians was highly profitable, and also because some Indians were fighting on behalf of the uh, the colonists who were trying to make their way in the new world, in, in the, you know, in this hemisphere. So it was a gun law that, that ultimately wasn't all that effective, but uh, it's just one example of the many, many, many kinds of gun laws that exist. Yeah, that, that's actually a question that I had or something I wanted you to expand on, because I've read um, that piece uh, that you've written about uh, several times about the myths of the history of gun control in the United States. And, you know, I think a lot of people would be actually quite surprised. And you've already alluded to this, but uh, that gun control has existed um, throughout the history of the United States. And and to Matt being the Kansas boy. Right. And I mean, the Wild West days, there was essentially correct me if I'm wrong, kind of the equivalent of, you know, modern, um, you know, uh, prohibition on, you know, open carry laws. Um, and Do think about Dodge City in particular. There's a famous photo. Um, can you kind of elaborate on some of these myths of gun control? Yeah, the 19th century frontier west is probably as clear an example as any of the reality of gun laws in america historically when you think of the west you think of everybody carrying a gun you think of lots of gunfights you think of no gun laws the, the idea being the idea i think that most people have is that gun laws are an artifact of the 20th century the modern industrial country and didn't really begin to be enacted until that time and that's actually not true at all. Uh, certainly, there was gun toting in the West. People carried guns, but the gun, the, the West was not won. The old expression, "the winning of the West," meaning you know settlers coming from the East and immigrants pushing out Indians and establishing settlements, towns, cities. That didn't occur mostly by gunplay. It occurred mostly by commercial and agricultural and governmental organization activity by people moving in, establishing towns, villages, cities, other jurisdictions, eventually becoming states as part of the union. And again, there, there was certainly gunplay. People did carry guns, but it really wasn't guns that won the West per se. And even though there are you know, movies and popular culture, novels have glamorized and extolled and described in endless detail, stories about gunfights gun fight, gun like the uh, the gunfight at O.K. Corral in Tombstone, Arizona, 1881. Very famous. There have been multiple movies made about that. I was brought up on Westerns, you know, so I certainly understand that popular culture. And the gunfight at the O.K. Corral did exist. But even in that instance, uh, Marshall Wyatt Earp and those who were with him that day 
we're enforcing the Tombstone no-gun carry law. So Tombstone had enacted such a law, and one of the very first things that was done when townships were created, when incorporated, um, which is something you wanted to do because you wanted to bring order, economic order, political order, social order, was enact no-carry laws. And indeed, those were commonly enacted in the Midwest, in the South especially, and in the Far West in uh, the late 18th century and well into and throughout the 19th century. That was the standard. That was the default. That is, no-carry laws. Every state in the country, except for one, had no gun carry laws or gun carry restrictions on the books between the late 1700s and the start of the 20th century. Every state, except one state, had no carry laws or sharply restrictive laws regarding gun carrying. Mostly that was against concealed carry, you know, hiding weapons, guns, and other certain types of weapons on your person. But there were also states that had uh, no open carry as well, not as many. But that was Again, that was the default, and it was through those kinds of laws that um, was part of the uh, process by which um, uh, settlement occurred, and the West was so-called tame, the term that you so often hear. So I have to ask, what was that one state again that did New Hampshire. Interesting. New Hampshire. Yes. (laughs) Unexpected. New Hampshire and Vermont are two states that historically – uh, have relatively few gun laws because they had a long gun tradition. And that is held true almost up to the present. I, I have to defend Westerns here, too. Um, if, you, if you really watch them and you understand them, so many times they start with the, you know, the sheriff enforcing a no-gun law, saying you have to drop your guns off in my office. Uh, you know, you have a high noon is about civilizing the West, uh, you know, from the mayor and, and the, the preacher. Um, and ending it that way. And so many of the gunfights are, again, about, you know, the outsider enforcing the gun law that the sheriff would enforce but can't enforce. So, yeah. No, that, that's exactly right. And, in fact, if you burrow in a little bit to these films, you do often see the very thing you describe. And, in fact, the typical process was if you had a gun and you were coming to some town <clears throat> in the Midwest or far west, the first thing you would do is go to the town hall or the sheriff's office or some usually a government building, leave your gun there, they give you a token, you know, like a hat check to counter people. That is yeah. a coat check. And then when you were leaving town, you turn in the token, get your gun, and you'd be out of the way. So that was the default. That was the stand precisely because they didn't want people uh, uh, roaming around with, with guns strapped to the belts, especially given the uh, uh, prolific availability of alcohol, of uh, gambling, of fights breaking out. Uh, Precisely because if you're armed when those things are happening, you're much more likely to have a bad outcome, which is no less true today than it was 150 years ago. So it was it was open carry liquor, but not open carry gun. Yes, although interestingly enough, there were early gun laws going back to the 1600s, making it a crime to discharge a firearm or carry a firearm if you were drunk at the time. I find it interesting that many gun advocates insist that insist upon the notion of a quote-unquote well-armed militia uh, that it's necessary to protect against a supposed tyrannical government but it seems to me that this is a fundamentally flawed point of view for a couple of reasons 
Um, and, and one, I'm not a legal scholar by any means, but Article One of the Constitution declares that, you know, militias are used to suppress insurrections and repel repel invasions, not to rebel against the, the government of the United States. And second, there, there seems to be a rather salient contradiction or inherent contradiction in that in the argument that guns should be used to be fight against a tyrannical government because in rebelling against the government, you're inherently rebelling against the second amendment. I think to a certain extent, uh, are my observations uh, misplaced on this? No, they are well-placed and properly placed. One of the most egregious and uh, uh, dysfunctional arguments or beliefs that we in fact are seeing in a, a reemergence of, right now and in the last couple of years is precisely this idea that militias and arms carrying by civilians represent somehow a bulwark against tyranny or that people have a right to overturn the government by violence if they think the government is tyrannical uh, or that militias are designed to serve that purpose. And none of those things is correct. I mean, the first point to make about militias is just as you say, as the constitution makes clear, militias firstly are organized, created, funded, regulated by the government. Under law, a militia is an extension of governmental authority. It can only be created by the state, by a state government or by the federal government. Constitution says so. And so does a whole web of federal laws, both before the Constitution was enacted and afterward. So, hey, Professor, can I interrupt on that to that point? You know, I, I have often you know face criticism from you know people when uh, you know talking to media, but you know, well, we have militias. This militias are technically illegal, right? There are technically formed they're the, the national guard right and that goes back to the militia act i think of 1903 or whatever it was and mm-hmm. in the dick act right i mean militias are technically illegal what we conventionally or our colonial kind of romanticized version of a militia well private militias are illegal um and th- this is part of the enduring confusion where this this was a, a, a an important movement in the 1990s when people in midwestern states and and far western states formed their own militias, the militia of Montana, for example, acronym was MOM. Um, And it was a bunch of guys, uh, mostly guys, who called themselves a militia and who claimed to have some kind of authority under the constitution or some kind of autonomous power or something. And there are various theories floating around about this. And, you know, you can call yourself anything you want. I mean, I can say that I'm the king of Prussia but that doesn't make me the king of Prussia. I mean, a bunch of guys can get together and go to the Army Navy store and buy combat fatigues and run around the woods and have maneuvers and call themselves the XYZ militia, but that has no meaning as a matter of law. And when private individuals make these claims, they're claims that have no legal foundation. Um, And every state in the union has laws against what are called paramilitary organizations, which are precisely private groups of individuals who claim that they have some kind of authority as a so-called militia, when in fact they do not. You're not allowed to have a private army. And in fact, there's a very important and often ignored Supreme Court case from 1886 called Presser versus Illinois, which is absolutely unequivocal in laying out the problems with the idea that private individuals can form anything that meaningfully is a militia. 
When we look in the contemporary era, we think the three percenters, right? We think the Oath Keepers and and these, you know, guys and playing GI Joe in the woods in Georgia or whatever. My understanding is technically, if that is a private militia, it's 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 illegal, but it's very difficult to prosecute. For example, Southern Poverty Law Center because they're not claiming actually be formal private militias. We're just a bunch of guys playing G.I. Joe on the weekends, right? And that's where the challenge is, despite every state having a law and federal law, right? There's a legal challenge to kind of fight against that, correct? Well, there is, and there's two problems. One is what you described, that is when the, you know, a bunch of guys are out in the woods in some rural area, who's keeping tabs on that, who's noting it, who's reporting it to the authorities. And the other part of that is that, frankly, local law enforcement, especially in more rural and typically conservative areas, local law enforcement is not really interested in provoking a confrontation, much less an armed confrontation. So as long as these guys are not bothering anybody, as long as they're not attacking anybody, as long as they're not actually expressly claiming some kind of authority, the the general attitude tends to be kind of live and let live. Um, And it's often difficult to prove in in a court of law that, look, these people are actually violating the prohibition against paramilitary activity until you get uh, a Clive and Bundy kind of situation or the uh, some of the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th of last year. And even in those cases, sometimes it's been difficult to get a, a conviction just because of the, the vagaries of the law. So, yeah, that kind of activity has existed, but it's not protected by the law. So, so a, a couple of questions is one, right? The problem there is these groups can tow up to the line, right? Stay on just the right side of it so that local law enforcement decides, well, we don't wanna bother them, we don't wanna provoke anything, and then suddenly jump over it, right? That's a problem. Um, and the second thing is, is why isn't this out there, right? It was 1866, I mean, why, why aren't uh, you know, gun control advocates screaming from the rooftops that this is not contested law? Well, they, uh, there is writing on these subjects. Um, in fact, there was a, an article that got quite a bit of attention this past weekend from uh, uh, a member of Congress who's on the January 6th investigative committee who had a, a big op-ed in the New York Times who's in the Sunday print paper making all of these points. And these points have been made many, many, many times. I've certainly written a fistful of articles talking about these very issues, and I talk about this in a couple of my books, including the invocation of John Locke and the so-called right of revolution, which, and and Locke has been hideously uh, misunderstood, let's say, or miscited, uh, leaving aside the fact that the United States is not the United States of John Locke, okay? So his writings philosophically, they're they're significant in political theory, but um, to, to, to yank some of Locke's writings into the contemporary discussion and claim that Locke says this stuff is perfectly fine is, is just a, a terrible distortion of Locke. So, but you don't hear this down at at the the, the sort of the the basic political level, right? Your books are out there, but why isn't why isn't it coming it down at that level? Why isn't it part of the common parlance of this discussion? Because it seems so obvious and, and and to me such a useful political line to bring up. It's disappointing that it's not more clearly understood. It is a fairly complex point having to do with our history, with the fact that we no longer have militias 
in America in the way we did 200 years ago. Uh, one of you mentioned the uh, uh, the Militia Act, the Dick Act of 1903, which modernized the militia system, but the old style uh, um, general militias where every man between the age of 18 and 45 could be put in arms in a militia, that doesn't, the authority to do that still exists on paper, but it's not how we organize national defense anymore. So there, there's lots of history in the intervening 200 year, 200 plus years that explains what's been going on and why this uh, these terms don't have the meaning today that they did centuries gone by. And it is kind of an arcane historical legal point um, and it's mostly people who really, really care about the gun issue a lot, which overwhelmingly is the gun rights people who perpetuate and amplify these false notions of private militias and armed insurrection. There's a very famous quote from a constitutional scholar saying that, <clears throat> that no country could have a constitution that includes a provision that says, if you don't like our government, you can overthrow it by violence. I mean, the whole point of our government system is precisely that citizens express their points of view through peaceful means. That was the whole point of what the founders were after. Yes, we fought a revolution in the 1770s to separate from Britain, but it's because we had no voice in the British government and everything that happened from the end, well, actually during the revolution and then past the end of the revolution was precisely to set up a government that could function through peaceful, expressive means, not through violence. Can you help us understand the notion or the difference between individual rights and collective rights and how that then relates to gun control, especially in light of recent Supreme Court decisions. Uh, I'm thinking, obviously, D.C. versus Heller, which I'm, I'm sure you'll mention here. Um, how and why, what is that distinction and why is that important today? Yeah, what you're referring to is a, it's really a contemporary debate about what the Second Amendment means. So the Second Amendment says that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, the meaning of that sentence is not as complex as some have made up. Uh, the one-time Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Warren Berger, once wrote that the best once said that the best way to understand the amendment is by beginning it with the word because, as in because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and the. All of the debate in the first Congress of 1789, which is when the Bill of Rights, including what became the Second Amendment, was introduced, debated, amended, and ultimately passed, and court cases in the uh, 200 succeeding years, roughly, uh, the interpretation of the amendment was that the Second Amendment pertained to citizens obtaining firearms in connection with their service in a government-organized and regulated militia. Precisely because back in the 18th century, the government didn't provide arms. They, were, they didn't have the resources. The arms weren't, weren't uh, manufactured in mass quantities. And there was a requirement that militia-eligible men obtain firearms 
for service in militias, requirements that were widely ignored, and it's one reason why the militia system ultimately collapsed. So that's why that wording was in the Second Amendment. So then you get in the 1970s, jump ahead to the 1970s and 80s, you begin to get a movement in the gun rights community to expand on and to carve out and justify a different interpretation. That first one referred to as the collective view or the militia view, right? That gun ownership pertains to your service in a government militia. The individualist argument of the Second Amendment says, well, no, it may include militias or maybe it doesn't, but it pertains to a personal or individual right to have a gun to protect yourself in some manner. One of the problems with that argument is that you don't need the Second Amendment for personal self-protection. I mean, if it was, if we were in the United States, in America, before the Second Amendment was added to the Constitution, and you're defending your, your, you know, your home and somebody breaks into your home and starts to pummel you and uh, you're in fear of your life and you turn your gun on the person, you kill the person. In other words, in a legitimate act of self-defense, you don't need the Second Amendment to make the case in court or before a judge or to the local prosecuting attorney of th- that you can only defend yourself because of the Second Amendment. In the case law, in common law, in, in modern criminal law, the right of self-defense is well-established. It goes back to the Middle Ages. So you don't need the Second Amendment for personal self-defense anyway. And, and the Supreme Court has never satisfactorily dealt with that fundamental fact. And they know any lawyer knows that perfectly well. Anyway, a movement built to reinterpret the Second Amendment to make it the venue for personal gun rights. And that idea wasn't exactly a new idea because even in the 19th century, people plucked out the phrase right to bear arms and talked about it sometimes as though it were a purely personal right, even though that's not what the amendment itself was about. Eventually, through publications and law reviews, in particular, this argument is built that, no, the Second Amendment is really about individual rights. And ultimately, you get a conservative Supreme Court with enough members on it in 2008 to reverse the case law, because there were past cases that affirmed the militia-based understanding of the Second Amendment. And in 2008, the Supreme Court, uh, five to four decision, Justice Antonin Scalia writes the majority opinion, saying the Second Amendment is about a personal right to have a gun, a handgun to defend yourself in your home. Professor, and, yeah. when did that movement start and, and why do you think it started? I've seen some things. It was after Vietnam. It, w- it was explicitly to create a wedge issue and other explanations. What do you think? Well, I actually did a study years ago at, uh, at the nearby Cornell University Law Library where I spent uh, Christmas vacation examining every law review article from the 1880s through the year 2000 that said anything about the Second Amendment. And what I discovered was that uh, there were about 15 law review, law journal articles from the late 1800s through 1960, all of which explained the Second Amendment as a militia-based right. Then in 1960, uh, a law student publishes an article saying that it's about an individual or a personal right. And that literature 
begins to grow. But it doesn't really take off until the National Rifle Association and its allies begin to fund and cultivate legal writing in law journals to promote, expand this new notion that the Second Amendment is about personal rights. And in the 1980s, this writing in law reviews explodes. I mean, you have dozens and dozens and dozens of articles making talking about this individualist point of view. And it builds as part of a movement that, that also brings in the Federalist Society, the conservative sort of new conservative legal movement uh, from the Reagan era and the Reagan Justice Department. And it becomes a key core issue for sort of new, this new legal conservatism, even though traditional conservatives in the law and elsewhere certainly had no interest and no uh, belief in this more, in this individual point of view about the meaning of the Second Amendment. But, um, I mean, a number of factors do come into play, to be sure, but it very much is tied to the growth of the gun rights movement, to its radicalization, to its politicization, and how that and, and ex- its extension to the legal side of it, building this legal argument, which culminates in the 2008 Heller case, and then the, now the 2022 case, the Summer of the Broom case, which expands this right to the streets. So, so there you go, kids. Your college paper can change the world for sure. <laughs> so, just I mean, to put it in layman's terms, right? Historically, uh, the Second Amendment and gun rights has all been about when you serve in a militia um, collectively as a unit, and you'd be provided weapons. And that had shifted over time due to a confluence of different events, including a change in kind of the. Uh, ideological and policy kind of predisposition of the NRA, which also shifted in the mid 20th century, I understand as well, from a simple rifle marksmanship club to political activism. And that resulted in now this notion that we have today of uh, it's not the right to own a gun is not necessarily tied to a militia service, um, but rather my individual right, which as you're kind of going back to what you're saying about defense of the home, we don't need the second amendment for defense. And it seems so arbitrary. Why don't we have a, a second amendment for owning a knife or, you know, any other sort of weaponry, right? Um, it, it seems so arbitrary if you think about it in that way. Well, there are people who are now making that sort of argument as well. And, and one of one of the consequences of the Bruin Supreme Court decision from this past summer is precisely that it's really uh, uh, scrambled the deck on on gun rights challenges against gun laws all over the place. And we're going to we're already seeing all kinds of challenges and a few lower court decisions that are kind of head scratching, to say the least, about a very expansive view of Second Amendment rights. There's a judge in Texas who handed down a decision saying that there's nothing in the history of the Second Amendment that bars felons from getting guns. There's no historical basis for it, this judge said. So felons can have guns too. Now, that's not a decision I don't think that's going to stand, but it's an indication of already how things in the legal community are the winds are, are shifting. We keep talking about Western states and Midwestern states. Why do you think that these ideas and this movement is, uh, you know, are centered out there? Well, the, the answer is because interpersonal violence began to spread and gun carrying began to spread. Uh, you saw first the rise of interpersonal violence in the early 1800s in the South, dueling, fighting, uh, uh, you know, pretty serious 
that became a, a serious problem, especially in southern so, states. Yeah. So why? Why does that? Why does that that interpersonal violence suddenly kick up then? Right. There's an array of writing about this, about criminality in American history. Uh, partly, it's tied to slavery and the enforcement of the institution of slavery uh, uh-huh. by uh, by whites. Uh, that's not the only reason, because whites are fighting with whites as well, because of the rise of the sort of the Southern manliness culture, um, where any perceived slight can result in a duel, uh, where dueling, even though dueling was widely, the states enacted laws to outlaw dueling, uh, it became, it was considered a test of manliness, and especially kind of the code of Southern honor. Uh, there's more writing about why that happens, but... Sorry, what about the urban-rural thesis, right? The frontier thesis, that you have to carry a gun because, you know, panthers are going to get you, or brigands. Is, that, is there anything to that? The, the Western well, movie thesis, right? Right, right, right. Well, those things existed, but the greatest uh, threats to people moving into the Midwestern and Far Western territories weren't gunplay. Certainly there were threats from Native Americans, but that was mostly handled through the province of, uh, later on, the, the U.S. Army um, and army outposts, uh, although you did have citizens forming militia-type groups to defend themselves from Indian attacks. Um, but there were far greater th- greater threats from starvation, from disease, from the weather, from uh, you know, farm accidents. Uh, Americans overwhelmingly at this point are still subsistence farmers, pretty hazardous occupation in the 1700s and 1800s. And uh, as more people are coming together in the Midwest, you begin to see a rise in gun carrying and interpersonal violence is kind of spreading to some degree. And that's again, why you see the rise. I mean, it, because it is a lawless area in terms of uh, the United States law, uh, because it's not occupied by Easterners at first, eventually it is. And as people occupy, as land disputes arise, property disputes arise, interpersonal conflict escalates. You see the desire to establish laws, to establish local communities, to establish law enforcement and gun control laws, too. Um, obviously, Professor, we, we, we do want to talk about um, your new book, uh, The Gun Dilemma, uh, How History is Against Expanded Gun Rights, which is just published by Oxford University Press. Would you mind sharing with us what motivated you to write this book? Uh, I'm very curious, as somebody who studied, you know, uh, gun control um, throughout your career, what was the the motivation in particular for this book and and the fundamental argument that you make in the book, of course, as well? Yes, I've been studying historical gun laws for just about 10 years now. And this, thanks to digital, the digitization of all laws, including gun laws, you can now get access to them through your home computer. <laughs> what a convenience. And in various sources, but one in particular out of Duke University has amassed a huge cache of old gun laws. And I've you know, just been reading and studying them. And I have written, I've been writing on old gun laws for now quite a number of years, but uh, one of the things I discovered was that these laws seeped into various areas and to an even greater extent than I had earlier thought. And that general uh, 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 sort of core of data, which is you know, what it is, um, uh, 
presented itself at a time that is right now when we see a sharp kind of a fork in the road in, in American gun policy. On the one hand, uh, the country's clamoring for stronger gun laws, there's widespread support, even among most gun owners for in support of most of the kinds of gun law ideas that are being discussed these days, on the one hand, versus a legal community that has become ever more conservative, ever more doctrinaire. Of course, we're seeing this not just in gun policy, but in abortion rights, in property rights, in a you know, zillion other things. And so we've seen this sharp divergence. And so one of my, my sort of critical query is, well, what's the actual gun law history, especially because these conservative jurists seem to swear oath to what's called originalism, constitutional originalism, which some of your listeners will, you know, will know about. But the idea that what all that matters is what the people who wrote the document 200 plus years ago were thinking and what existed at the time. And in fact, contrary to what they think, what many think, gun laws were the default in American history. So my job in recent years and my this new book has been to excavate those laws to see what our gun law tells gun laws tell us about the modern dispute over assault weapons, over restrictions on large capacity ammunition magazines, over gun silencers. Some people are arguing now that there's a Second Amendment right to own a silencer, believe it or not. There's a judge who ruled as much out in California a couple of years ago on gun brandishing and display that is walking around in public with guns readily, you know, uh, uh, observable. And it turns out that that activity was widely and extensively prohibited throughout our history. The idea, and we've seen, what have we seen in recent years? People going to demonstrations carrying their AR-15s, right? And uh, people are terrified. And that was as true 200 years ago, 300 years ago, as it is today. And there were laws against brandishing and display, gun brandishing and gun display, in the 1600s. And continuously from then to the start of the 20th century. So these... And the final issue that I examine in the book is a new movement called the Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement, where state and local government leaders have been saying in recent years, well, we don't like these gun laws that exist or laws that might be enacted. And so we're not going to follow these laws because we think they're against our gun rights. And this has been a movement that's not received much attention, but that's all over the country. And so I write about that as kind of a uh, one specific uh, evidence of the contemporary gun debate. So I look at all of these contemporary issues, but through a historical lens. Well, comments? I mean, I, I would ask one quick question. I, I think I know the answer, but, but is there anything on the other side, right? On the gun rights side, my mom's a teacher in Texas, right? Give teachers guns. I'm kidding. She doesn't actually think that. Um, but is there anything that you agree with or that you can work with in their positions? Well, sure. I mean, there's actually a lot. Um, and I, I discovered this when I talk to uh, you know, gun people. I go to gun shows. I talk to gun rights people. I've always had students in my gun, right, gun policy class who are members of the NRA, stuff like that. And once you get past their uh, uh, instinctive uh, rejection of the phrase gun control and say, well, if you were king or queen, what would you like to see? One of the first things they'll say is gun training. You shouldn't be able to own a gun unless you know how to use it, unless you're not going to shoot yourself or 
or your dog Fido or your girlfriend, let's say, right? Um, and there are many areas of commonality once you get back, sorry, once you get past the initial sort of uh, a fear of talking to somebody who shares an opposing point of view. And there's, there, there's plenty for, there's plenty of common ground to be identified in law and in habits uh, if you can get past people's initial uh, defensiveness about talking about the issue. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's leave it on that rather optimistic uh, tone. Uh, I want to thank you, Professor, for joining us on Impolitik. You've really helped us learn what I think is uh, a really important and obviously uh, emotionally charged subject in the United States uh, and the world uh, and really helped uh, clarify how we view uh, gun control today. So thank you for your time. Best of both of you guys. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt. I think I think one of the most important lessons, um, you know, at least talking to students and, you know, when we do media interviews, especially when we we think about everything that's going on in the United States today is like all these myths that surround gun control uh, and these myths that surround the the militias uh, in the United States. And I don't think that's it's commonly uh, understood that, you know, gun control has been, as Professor said, you know, such a integral, um, uh, integral part of American history um and if i wonder if you could even we didn't have a chance to ask but i wonder if you could even make the argument that gun control is more restrictive today or uh, previously than it is today in the sense that there's large populations that were totally prohibited from owning guns blacks and slaves and uh indians right i mean there's huge segments of the population that were prohibited. Um, and so I, I think you could make the argument that gun control was more restrictive historically in the United States, which is kind of ironic because those who tend to advocate for the Second Amendment, you know, romanticize the colonial and historical era, which factually had more gun control. Well, I think you're, I mean, you're absolutely right that in, in total percentage of the population, you must have had stricter uh, gun control. Right. And it, it's interesting, too, that the that this first gun control law happens in 1619, which is the year that that uh, chattel slavery begins in North America. Right now, he, he explained that as as a, being a, a prohibition on trading with Native Americans. But surely it must have applied to, uh, you know, to African slaves, too, simply that, you know, that they weren't even considered humans to trade with. Um, so I think that's a you know a, a historical point that we should you know we should keep bringing up. But I I, I find I you know work with students and I do work on Ukraine, uh, and I find both Ukrainians who will reference the American Second Amendment, um, it, you know, in reference to their own fight, who get it wrong because they don't see that their own militias were quickly organized into the military. Right. And put under the, the monopoly of the state. Right. The kids, the legitimate monopoly on the threat or use of force is what the state is. Um, and, you know, and then certainly Americans don't understand that. Right. This this project from this law student in 1960 um, ends up creating a situation where most of the students in my class think militias mean private militias. I, I think that, um, you know, this this notion of militias is. Um, is grossly misunderstood and this is important for national security of and we talked about this in the podcast um and i would have liked an opportunity to talk a little bit more about it uh we might have to have professor back on but you know militias private militias today are illegal uh, i actually had a student uh, come up to me after class once uh and, and talk when we were talking about domestic terrorism 
and you know said professor I, I, you know we should have well regulated and armed militias today and i said yes they're, they're called the, the national <laughs> guard they are right, by yeah. law the national guard um and you know professor alluded to this in our interview that um you know every state at the state level and of course the federal level private militias are illegal and i read an interview with an attorney i think he was affiliated with the southern poverty law center which has historically gone after um you know these um you know hate groups or racial uh discrimination and militias in the united states and one of the challenges that they face in terms of prosecuting these quote unquote private militias it's it's very difficult to establish right um you got to get a bunch of guys like three percenters in the force in georgia um you know it's very difficult to establish Apologies, georgia again yeah, <laughs> we we can go with Kansas if you like, right? We go Kansas uh, on the high plains. Let's yeah. let's spread the love around. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and and they're technically illegal, but it's very difficult to establish that these you know bunch of guys playing GI Joe in the forest or Rambo in the forest in the in the high plains or wherever in the United States are technically forming a a a private militia. But, and you brought up this point, and I, I think this is this is important. Is essentially okay? Let's ignore live and let live, and essentially ignore it because you know one it's very difficult to prosecute but you brought up the point all there's this, this kind of tipping point where it just quickly boils over into clive and bundy or confrontations with the federal government or january 6 right and there seems to be i think a huge disconnect between you know live and let live on one end and then just wait until it boils over into armed confrontation and rebellion well, and i think yeah i think that's a really interesting point because we didn't get to talk about any of this, but it's different today when you have AR-15s and you tip, you cross a tipping point than when you're in the whiskey rebellion with muskets, um, right? And so the so the police or the military do not necessarily have that overwhelming advantage and a capacity to, uh, to you know to to control uh, these kinds of movements. And, and before, surveys, you know, before they may be able to win, but lots of people can get killed first. No, this is something in, in surveys and studies with uh, local police communities uh, around the country uh, have said that the, one of the greatest concerns that they have, local law enforcement, especially in rural areas, uh, are sovereign citizens or militia movement uh, members. But, uh, you know, you pull somebody over who it takes offense with, you know, the government and federal laws, um, and uh, that can be deadly for a single lone police officer by himself. Um, and, you know, rural United States. Um, I, and I think, you know, you brought up like the Whiskey Rebellion, but I think a Shays Rebellion and it kind of the emphasize the fact that Article One of the Constitution yeah. does not say that we have a militia to protect against a tyrannical government. Right. It, it, it says Article One says that militias are used to suppress insurrections and repel invasions. Um, and I think, you know, the Shays Rebellion was one of the most notable um, uh, in Massachusetts, um, you know, concerning that very issue that the, you know, they had to call in militias to put down this rebellion i think for you and me and people in national security uh, you can see how interested we are in this topic right how fundamental the question of gun rights in our own country is to how we think about national security um whether we whether it's thinking about domestic violence as as the primary concern for national security or thinking about how we think about combatants overseas, right? And their gun rights, whether or not they're, they're wearing uniforms or not wearing uniforms, right? Sort of this issue is at the base of things like the Geneva Convention. I think if you, if you really dig down, mm. Um, mm. there's just so much here. And, and a book uh, like Professor Spitzer's, I think is a required reading for people in our field. Um, I'm going to go get it you know, right away. 
Yeah, I would encourage all the listeners to uh, check out Professor Spitzer's new book, The Gun Dilemma, How History uh, Against Expanded uh, Gun Rights um, by Oxford University Press. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Impolitik. Uh, please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes, and please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.